If you wouldn't mind standing for the reading of the word, we're going to read tonight out of Acts chapter 11, starting in verse 19. If you have your Bibles, you can open there. It's on the screen. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenist also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there was to be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Tonight, as we continue through the book of Acts, as we continue through this story of the gospel spreading, we come to the city of Antioch. The church in Antioch is probably one of the most important churches in the book of Acts. As we continue, we're going to see that the gospel is spreading not just geographically, but culturally also. It's expanding its reach. Luke shows us how the church in Antioch becomes this launching pad, becomes this epicenter. It's a, it's a base of operations for Paul and his future ministries and will also become a base of operations for Paul's journey with Silas. This is, it becomes an epicenter of mission to the Gentile world in the church of Antioch. Antioch was the third largest city in the Greco-Roman world. It was behind Rome and Alexandria. Alexandria um, in northern Egypt, Rome in Italy, and then you had Antioch. Sort of like in the U.S., we've got, well, I guess if we go New York, L.A., Chicago, I think, would be the third largest. Alexandria, Rome, and then Antioch. Antioch at this time had somewhere around half a million people. This was a large city, 
Currently, the city where Antioch was in history is like 10,000. It's a tiny little place. But back in the first century, half a million people called this city home. It was nicknamed the Queen of the East. It was both cosmopolitan, it was, it, was, it was an epicenter, and it was also commercial. A lot of business took place in the city. It was the capital, former capital of Syria. It was an important military base, epicenter for Rome. It was about 300 miles north of Jerusalem. 300 miles. And it was 30 miles inland on a river. It's now in somewhere in southeast Turkey, this current, where it currently sits. It was an important city because it had many Roman highways going through it, converging through it, and, and it became sort of an epicenter where the regions would collide. Greeks and Romans and Syrians and, and Jews and Arabs and even Africans and Indians and there's stories even of, of Asians coming into this epicenter, this city, this, this growing metropolis. Religiously, Antioch was very pluralistic. There's many different gods that had temples established there. It was called actually the abode of the gods was known for cult prostitution, was known for idolatry and wickedness. This is sort of what this city was known for. All of this makes for the ideal place for the Lord to launch his mission out of. A great place for a church. John Stott said, No more appropriate place could be imagined either as the venue for the first international church or as a springboard for the worldwide Christian mission. The church in Antioch, not necessarily the mother church in Jerusalem, changed the world. It was from this place that missions begins to spread. Missions went out from Antioch. The question is, what made Antioch so powerful? What, what was it about this city, this place, this epicenter, that was so important? What ingredients were there that, that created this missional church that would affect the entire region and ultimately the whole world? This chapter, I think, looks at several things that I just want to highlight Several marks of what makes a missional church, a church that's on mission with Jesus. I think we would do well to learn from some of these examples. Like many things, it's, it's uh, simple to look at, simple to understand maybe, to, to read these, but very difficult to actually do these things. This is, this is not an easy thing to do, to, to look and to try to imitate the way this church lived and operated. Let's look at it and let's jump in. I'm going to go just verse by verse here. Starting in verse 19, they're scattered. Those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, speaking to no one except the Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, 
who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenist also, preaching the Lord Jesus. So Luke takes us back to the story of the stoning of Stephen, that martyrdom of Stephen. Back in um, chapter 8, we, he says that the, the church was scattered except for the apostles. The whole church at, at the stoning of Stephen scatters except for the apostles. They go out as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus, which is an island, and Antioch. They're scattered much like a farmer scattered seed, though. These initial missionaries that are sent out are sent out sort of by force. They didn't really have a choice. Their persecution broke out. First thing that it's important here is that this scattering... It spread, they didn't necessarily start, not all of them, cross-culturally. A lot of them kept to themselves, kept to their, the, the Jewish community. But in Antioch, it, it stands out, it's, it's striking that their mission, their outreach, goes beyond just the Jewish people. In Antioch, we see a church that was planted out of real evangelism. The gospel took root in Antioch, and a church came later. Let's look at a few distinct qualities that we see in Antioch. First thing, culturally engaged. The church in Antioch was culturally engaged. So the believers are scattered from Jerusalem, they're sent out during persecution. Some of them go all the way to Phoenicia, present-day Lebanon. Some end up in Cyprus. That's an island nation about 100 miles off the coast. And others end up in our city, Antioch, that we're looking at tonight. They're scattered. These Christians, Acts chapter 8, verse 4, says what they did. As they were scattered, these Christians went about preaching the word. So these everyday, normal Christians that flee because of persecution that breaks out, what do they do? They go about preaching the word. Normal people. The, the apostles, the ones that were trained, they stayed in Jerusalem. These normal, everyday Christians spread throughout the region preaching the word, presenting the good news. Most of these believers, Luke says, though, they spoke the gospel only to Jews. This is somewhat to be expected, right? We talked last week about some of the deep-rooted Jewish uh, exceptionalism, the way that they saw themselves versus the world and the nations. It's natural and understandable for them to stick to their, their community. As they were fleeing for their lives, they likely went and found family members and relatives and friends of friends who were within their community to stay with. It's to be understood. But in verse 20, something unique develops. Something unique begins. Some men were, were told from Cyprus and Cyrene, which is in northern Africa, they arrive in Antioch. And they courageously begin to preach the good news of Jesus to the Hellenists, 
which is another way of saying Greeks. I think, I think clearly this is, this is talking about Gentiles. They begin to preach the good news to the Gentiles. Tim Keller, he called these initial evangelists, he called them mavericks. John Stott said that they are daring spirits. These are the ones who, who did something daring. They began to preach the good news of Jesus to the Gentiles. These men were traveling as far as from Africa. Maybe they had come from Africa to Jerusalem. They were there at Pentecost. That whole tongues thing happens. They're all together. They're learning under the apostles. Persecution breaks out. And they scatter, and now they find themselves in Antioch, 300 miles north, preaching the good news to Gentiles, among Gentile unbelievers. Now, last week, we just looked at Cornelius, right, who was also a Gentile. What's unique here, though, is Cornelius was a God-fearer. He was someone that even though he was a Gentile, he had devoted his life in everything except for diet and circumcision, to being like a Jew. He already loved the God of the Jews. This is something completely different. No one up until this point, for sure, had strategically and specifically focused on preaching to the Gentiles. Even the Samaritans that we looked at earlier in Acts, as, as the gospel came to them, they're not exactly the same. They're close cousins to the Jews. The, this is something entirely different, a pagan, ungodly Gentile city. These mavericks, as Keller called them, are doing something completely new. These guys from Cyprus and Cyrene, they, they broke through this cultural barrier in a major way. I think one of the reasons they were effective in this work is that they had a mentality of cultural engagement. They, they thought about how to engage the culture. They, we don't see that they had an anti-Gentile bias. They didn't seem to function out of this us-versus-them worldview. Rather, it appears that, as Paul would later say, they, they knew how to be all things to all people so that they might even possibly, by some means, reach some. So the gospel spreads. The gospel breaks out and spreads to the pagans. I think it's important to think through this a little bit. Like, sometimes deeply committed believers can find themselves handicapped when it comes to mission, their ability to live mission, missionally. They find themselves kind of cut off from the, the people around them and and hard to engage and even have conversation with unbelieving friends. Isolated. I think sometimes even well-intentionally, well-intentioned, we care more about protecting our way of life and, and sort of sheltering ourselves than we do about engaging the culture around us. About bringing the gospel to the unbelieving world that's far from Jesus. 
Sometimes there can be this sort of like hide in a bomb shelter, let's create a cloistered community that's often ourselves and forget about what's going on around us. They can fend for themselves. But that will never work for the gospel. That's not how the gospel functions. We are called to be salt and light in the world. You can't be salt and light if you're never involved, if you don't engage the culture around you. Salt is only salty if it's there to clean up, to, to bring flavor. Light only works when there's darkness to expel. The Antioch Christians, they didn't withdraw from contact from people who didn't understand the gospel. They engaged them. They shone their light even more brightly. And it was effective. It worked. To be like the church in Antioch, it necessitates that we're involved with people. That we have to learn how to, be, how to live faithfully and sensibly and soberly and wisely and winsomely amongst the people who are far from God, who are even opposed to your God, who think that by the nature of you being a Christian, you are the problem. We have to learn how to live winsomely amongst that type of a people. No battle is ever won by escapism. We have to engage. It requires engagement. It requires intentionality. It requires being present for the good of those that we're engaging, for the good of the, the people around us. We have to engage. The second thing we learn from this community is that they had a really relevant gospel understanding and a gospel proclamation. Again, in chapter, in, in chapter 11, verse 20, it says that they preached, they were preaching the Lord Jesus. Preaching the Lord Jesus. These guys from Cyprus and Cyrene, these guys were proclaiming the good news about the Lord Jesus. Notice there, this might just be a play on words here, but it stood out to me, they didn't preach about Jesus the Christ. They didn't preach about the Jewish Messiah, necessarily. I think they got there, as, the, as Paul comes and teaches, they get there because they're called Christians. But initially, the message is about Jesus the Lord. Jesus the Lord. The title Curios, the Greek word for Lord, it was commonly used amongst these pagan religions. It was commonly spoken in the mystery religions. It was a term to, to reference a divine God who could give salvation, who had power to give salvation to the people. It was a commonly used term, Lord. Their message had to be understandable and translatable to the community around them. It had to be displayed in a way that made sense to a community that had no cultural understanding of the Jewish Messiah. 
They got there. They taught them for over a year. But it starts with a simple message. Jesus is Lord. It seems to me they were able to sort of, just like they're able to exegete the Scripture, to interpret the Scripture and understand the Scriptures, they're able to interpret the culture around them and present a gospel in a way that was effective. What is the good news to the people around you? How do we share the gospel with the community around you? To be missional, you need to know the gospel well. You need to know the story of God well. But you also need to consider the interests and the involvement, the reality of the people that you're presenting to. You need to be able to know your audience. A third thing here. There was a level of anonymity. Did you notice that we don't know any of these guys' names? We have no record of who it was that brought the gospel to Antioch. Their evangelism, their outreach efforts has a ripple effect for years to come and shaped the course of human history, but we don't know their name. We have no idea who they actually were. Have you ever wondered, have you ever thought for a second whether an unnamed, unfamous Christian has an effect, is important? This is a good example. These men were just being faithful disciples of Jesus. Normal, everyday Christians. These are not superstars. They're not apostles. They're not somebody special. These are just normal Christians being faithful and living obedient I don't think they had a plan necessarily. There's no program. There's no budget. This is just Christians being Christians. They had a zeal for the Lord, a passion for his name. They had, we know from the next chapter, a real prayer life, like I was just talking about. They had a real vibrant community. And the Lord worked amongst them and through them in a mighty way. In our time, we live in a culture that, that likes the celebrities. Celebrity Christianity, I mean, there's, there's, there's so many different documentaries and podcasts, we, we could name them all, right? About the celebrity Christians. I think we desperately need to rediscover this kind of work of normal men, normal people from Cyprus and Cyrene. Normal Christians, unsung heroes, give us a model here to follow. The most important people in the church are not necessarily the most famous. We cannot confuse popularity with significance. They're not the same. The church in Antioch got its start because nobodies shared their faith with their neighbors. It would be way better to have an entire church 
full of normal people daily sharing their faith than one superstar, one celebrity. Way more effective. And this is how the church has always worked throughout history. Fourth thing, and probably the most important here, we see is the Lord's sovereignty. Verse 21, the hand of the Lord was with them. And great numbers who believed turned to the Lord. The hand of the Lord was with them. They, they were ordinary people with an extraordinary God. He was with them. The, the Lord's sovereign hand was with them and amongst them and on them. He blessed the message that they shared. The gospel was blessed. The Lord himself, Jesus, is always meant to be the hero of the story, and he is here. He's the hero of the story. It's the good news about Jesus. He's the goal of the story. He's the goal of the message. They turned to the Lord, not an institution. And he's the source of their power. It was his hand that was amongst them, that was on them. Jesus is building his church. Jesus is doing it in a secular, pagan, ungodly city like Antioch. Jesus is doing it. The reality is, in our own power, in our own ability, we can't turn people to the Lord. Not unless the Lord's hand is up with us, is upon us. The reality is, I think we can turn them to follow a personality. We could turn them to follow a social club or to be a part of a, a, a social club. We could get people to join a, an organization or an institution. But unless the Lord's hand is on us, our work is in vain. Without the Lord's hand, we cannot turn the people to the Lord. We need his sovereign move. We need him to work amongst us. Now, we can't manipulate the hand of the Lord either. We can't force him to do what we want him to do. But I think... As you get on in through this chapter 13, you, you start to see how the church in Antioch prayed. They fasted. This was not like a, an abnormal thing for them. This was a praying people. They were desperate to see God's hand at work, and he showed up. He blessed the work of their hands. He blessed the gospel that they proclaimed. As this continues, jumping down to verse 22 here, we're going to look at when the gospel begins to take root in a city, in a community, people begin to come to faith. It's not enough for people to just make a prayer and, and, and say that they're followers of Jesus. They have to, people need to be discipled. People need to be taught the way of Jesus. And we see this clearly in this, in this passage of what I think is happening in Acts chapter 11 here. 
So the report, starting in verse 22, the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas. They sent Barnabas. He came and he saw the grace of God. He was glad and he exhorted them to all to remain faithful. I'm just going to keep reading this. Um, re- remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. When he found them, he brought him back. He brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. The disciples in Antioch, they, this discipleship model, I think, has three things that we're going to look at. There's, there's a form of accountability. There's encouragement, and there's instruction. I think often we think of discipleship, and we go straight to instruction, teaching. That's part of it. They spent a whole year teaching. But there's, there's accountability, there's encouragement, and instruction. Accountability. Just like when the Jerusalem church sent Peter and John to endorse the work in Samaria. Again, they send somebody to endorse what's going on here. They send Barnabas to Antioch. Tim Keller says that Barnabas was, was sort of a quality control effort. The Jerusalem church, the apostles are there, and they hear of what God's doing 300 miles north. And they say, we've got to send somebody to check this out. We need to know if this is really of God or not. They send Barnabas. They want to evaluate what's going on. I'm sure some of them were critical and even suspicious. Deep-rooted racial tensions, I'm sure, come into play. And some of them are probably hopeful and wanted to help. I think Barnabas shows that he's of the latter there. He wanted to help. But there's this, this accountability. This, this church from Jerusalem says, we want to back up, see what God's doing here. Accountability is not necessarily a, a popular thing, but this is a good thing here. The church was, was holding the, the message accountable. It was important for Antioch. There's no apostolic leaders. The church is filled with nothing but new believers. brand new. And so they send Barnabas, and he evaluates and he endorses the work that God is doing in Antioch. Second thing he does is encouragement. Barnabas was a Greek-speaking Jew from Cyprus, so he's familiar with the area. He could relate with the Gentiles probably better than the Jews from Jerusalem. And it seems to me like he loved being an encouragement. He, he gets the nickname later as the son of encouragement. Barnabas is the right person for this job in Antioch. He's the right guy. He didn't come and quench the fire of what God was doing. He didn't come with suspicion of the enthusiasm and the excitement 
He applauds it, actually. He, he sees the grace of God at work, and he encourages it. And just think, like, hypothetically. If somebody less flexible was sent from Jerusalem, what would have happened? I think... Often, Christian missionaries, we, we've done this throughout history. Western missionaries, we go in and, and we try to bring our own culture, make people wear our own clothes, sing our same songs. That's not the goal of Christian mission. That's not the goal here, is, is not to impress our culture upon another. Missionaries, and if we're going to be a missional people, we must learn to apply the gospel within people's own culture. How to apply the gospel within you, the unique culture that you're ministering amongst. The music, the dress, the customs, the language, all of that was, was different in Antioch than it was in Jerusalem. And I think Partly because Barnabas understands the big picture of what God is doing. I think he rejoices in what God's doing. He doesn't feel the need to, to bring them into the same culture, the same stylistic expressions. He sees that God is at work. God is doing something, and he encourages the believers, this is, this is a key, to remain faithful. That implies that they were already being faithful. Different, but faithful. They were already living faithful. It's verse 23. Barnabas was an encourager. The Bible says that he was a good man, a, a good, encouraging man. I think sometimes we can we can underestimate the pow the power of encouragement, the value of encouragement. I think just like back then, we need encouragement. We need to come together regularly and encourage each other. Paul says in 1 Corinthians actually that that the essence of prophecy, what pro the purpose of prophecy even is to encourage, uplift and exhort. Paul tells the Thessalonians that therefore encourage one another and build each other up as you are already doing. This is the work of the Spirit. This is part of what we're supposed to do when we come together is encourage one another. And the question here is we're looking, what makes a good disciple maker? What, what made Barnabas good at his job that he was doing? He had sound theology for sure. But he was also an encourager. He was known for stirring others up for faith and good works. An encourager needs to pay attention. A disciple maker needs to pay attention to the heart of the people around him. Think for a second. Just, just honest evaluation of your own life. 
When other believers, when you show up on a Sunday at 4, 3.45, if you come a little early, because we start at 4, remember. When you show up, <laughs> is it more likely that people think, I want to talk to this person because I'm going to be encouraged. I need to go talk with this guy because I'm going to feel strengthened and encouraged. Or is it more likely that people are like, I don't need another story of how tired you are. Just talking about myself here because I'm, I'm tired a lot. Um, I don't need another story of how bad things are going in your life. That's not going to strengthen or encourage me. I don't know. How, how do people view you when you come here on a Sunday or when you see each other at a cafe or something? Do we look forward to those conversations because we're going to be uplifted, exhorted, and encouraged? Do we want to spend time to, like, open up our schedule and make a story and table group work because we leave that strengthened and encouraged? Or do we view it as a burden and a drain and a downer to be around other Christians? Something to consider there. Make it our daily aim. Just make it a goal. I'm going to encourage somebody today. I'm going to place courage in them. I'm going to give them strength and encourage, encouragement. Verse 24 says, People were added to the Lord. I think this shows that Barnabas' discipleship efforts it encouraged and it equipped these new converts to then continue the work as evangelists, bringing the good news to the, their own friends. This is how the church has spread throughout history. New believers come in, and part of being a disciple of Jesus is the fact that we share our faith, that we're telling the good news of Jesus to everybody around us. What happens here is what's Barnabas is thrilled, I'm sure. The church is growing. Antioch is growing. But he needs help. The reality is he can't do this on his own. So he sends for a helper. He goes and finds Saul, who's at Tarsus, to come and help. He needs another disciple maker. He picks Saul. And they do the third part, which is I think what we typically think of when we think of discipleship. They teach. There's instruction. Verse 25 and 26. Barnabas goes and he finds Saul and they spend a year teaching the disciples. I think it's important, or it's interesting at least, that Barnabas goes and he looks for Saul. He didn't run back to Jerusalem and bring back one of the the apostles, he goes and he finds Saul. Not that one of those guys couldn't have done it, but there was something 
that God was doing in the life of Saul, Paul. He knew that Saul's calling was to the Gentiles. He knew that Saul had sort of a bridge-making ability, that he had the ability to communicate to a diverse group. He was educated. He, he knew. He was well-informed in the Scriptures. I find it interesting that Barnabas could have, he could have made a name for himself. Man, if he, if he would have just, I'm going to focus all my efforts, I'm going to build this church, and it's going to grow, he could have been something here. But I think he humbly shares the load. He goes and he searches for somebody who honestly his teaching gift surpasses his own. Paul's teaching gift was superior. He strategically recruits somebody who could help him. And very soon, the narrative's going to switch. Here, it's Barnabas and Saul, but very quickly, it's going to be Paul and Barnabas. Later, we're going to read about more teachers in this church. But Paul and Barnabas provided most of the teaching, most of the instruction, it, it would seem. They taught large numbers. Teaching is an important component to disciple-making. I think we know this. This is a little bit like, yeah, we teach the Bible. Listening to music is not going to make mature followers of Jesus. Just attending church gatherings is not going to make mature followers of Jesus. You don't become a disciple or grow as a disciple by osmosis, just by being around other Christians. That's not how it works. It takes intentionality. It takes formation. It takes teaching. Christians need to learn how to apply the gospel to their lives, how to apply the scriptures, and we need to faithfully instruct people in the word of God. They dedicated an entire year of their lives here, teaching, patiently teaching them to follow the way of Jesus. And the result, verse 26, in an Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. This is the first time that this new Messiah movement has a name, so to speak. The Christians. They've been called people of the way, they're disciples, followers of Jesus, all these different things. But here in Antioch, they're called Christians. It's interesting to me, I don't think that the believers in Antioch necessarily called themselves Christians. I think they were called Christians. This title only occur occurs three more times, sorry, three times total in the Bible, Christian. Again in Acts 26, and then in 1 Peter. In every time, each of those instances, it's a term used by outsiders to describe the Jesus movement. 
Something unique was happening amongst these Gentile disciples of Jesus that people on the outside saw them and said, these are, that's the, the Christians, the ones who are like Christ. It was, it was almost a derogatory term that they, they use as a badge of honor. Those ones are the Jesus people, the, G, the Christ followers, the little Christs. And this is a turning point for the church. The followers of Jesus were so different from the culture around them that the citizens had to sort of come up with a third category, a third classification. They're, they're not Jews. They're not Gentiles. Something beyond just Jew or Gentile. Something changed. It's a completely different category now. These are Christians. It's a new humanity, as N.T. Wright would say. This is the new people of God. As we close this out, the section closes with a I think a glimpse at the heart of this church in Antioch. There's this story of this prophet who comes, Agabus, and tells, foretells of a famine that's going to come. So a prophet comes from Jerusalem and foretells by the spirit of a great famine that would come. And how the church in Antioch responds. They display the fruit of salvation with Good works, as Galatians 6 says, especially towards the household of the saints. They committed the gospel, they were committed to the gospel in both word and in action. And we see that here clearly. A prophet comes and prophesies a famine over the whole empire. Historians say that it's possible that this happened because of a flood in the Nile River. A flood that happened in A.D. 45, where the harvest in Egypt, which was the breadbasket for the region, was destroyed. This sent the price of grain skyrocketing. We're familiar with these kinds of stories, right? Things become expensive. Famine breaks out. All of this foretold by a Christian prophet. And the church in Antioch responds they, give their, they have an opportunity ahead of time, before it breaks out, to respond to the Holy Spirit. And they give, according to, according to uh, the book, book of Acts here, they give according to their own ability. They send resources. This is selfless. This is the way of Jesus. Instead of hearing the word of the, the prophecy and panicking in self-preservation, trying to hoard their resources, because it's going to affect them too, they embrace what the gospel means and they give 
to a culture completely outside of them. They send their resources to Judea. They put others before themselves. It's the way of Jesus. This is how it works. This is a a good reminder that the gospel must be displayed in a generosity and in a, in a, a willingness to serve and to give. And not just when we're financially stable or able or we have enough time, but to do it now. Even if it means starting fall, it's in, starting small, it's important that we show and display mercy. That we give as it says here, according to our own ability. The church here didn't ask, like, how much is this going to cost? Do we have enough? Can we weather it ourselves? They simply give as much as they can. They give generously, abundantly, out of what they had. The gospel had transformed them and changed them. Bringing this all together, we are called, the church is called to be a missional people. We are called to live out the mission of God, to join him on his mission, to bring the good news of the risen Savior to a lost and dying and hurting world. The church here in Antioch functioned like an embassy of the kingdom of God. It functioned as an outpost of the kingdom. Eugene Peterson said this. He asked the question, why church? He said, the short answer is because the Holy Spirit formed it to be a colony of heaven in the country of death. That's why the church. I love that quote. and I think it forces the question, right? It's a good question. Why the church? Sometimes, if we're honest, the church feels kind of mundane. It feels unexciting, normal, everyday life, right? The question is, do we then just go look for something more exciting? Do we go try to find something that maybe stimulates us a little bit more or meets our needs a little bit better? I think if we do that, we miss the point. I think we miss the point. I think in America, we we live in a community and a culture of consumerism where we day in and day out consume. And we don't even realize it, but this is how we live. As consumers, we consume content and goods and products. It's impossible not to carry that worldview into how we do church. We treat church sometimes as if it's something to be consumed. I think unless we directly confront our own consumerism, I think we will never grow up to practice 
discipleship in the way the church in Antioch did. We'll never be a missional people like they were in Antioch. They were focused on a worldview of investment and generosity, giving of themselves sacrificially, not one of consumption. As long as we try to be consumers, I think we miss the entire point of what it looks like to be a colony of heaven in a community of death, a country of death. I think this requires, though, that we plant ourselves, that we contribute, that we work through difficulties, relational difficulties, that we love each other, that we want to encourage each other through difficulties, that we want to find other ways to strengthen each other, not just to come and be fed The church in Antioch was like an embassy for the kingdom. The people, its people gave the world a picture of what Jesus' kingdom, once it's fully consummated, would look like. This church of different backgrounds displayed a unique set of values, a unique way of life, and a unique message that shaped the church. They didn't just blend aimlessly into the culture. They were different. The modern church, we would do well, I think, to follow this pattern. They were a church of single focus. It was all about Jesus. They preached Jesus. They lived for Jesus. They exalted him. No grounds for elitism, no superiority. They lived to exalt Jesus. Let's be a missional church. Let's be that kind of a church. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for examples that we have, like the church in Antioch. Stories and biographies of men like Barnabas and Saul. God, these testimonies of your grace, these testimonies of, of truth and how you work through everyday normal people. God, I thank you for this group, this church that is called out to be a people of the gospel. God, I pray that you would help us to live a unique life with a unique message amongst a world that needs to hear it. That we would present, that we would share, that we would display the reality of your kingdom as a colony of heaven 
that there would be something unique and different about us that people on the outside would notice. Like they did in Antioch and said, those people are Christians. They're people like Jesus. That group that meets at 4 p.m. on Sundays, they're like Jesus. God, that we would be that kind of a community. God, do what only you can do. We love and trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.